Chapter 8, Part 2 of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Adams. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter 8 the Great Fight for Clean Government, Part Two. Mr. Fyshe, as chairman, addressed the meeting. He told them they were there to initiate a great free voluntary movement of the people. It had been thought wise, he said, to hold it with closed doors, and to keep it out of the newspapers. This would guarantee the League against the old underhand control by a clique that had hitherto disgraced every part of the administration of the city. He wanted, he said, to see everything done henceforth in broad daylight. And for this purpose he had summoned them there at night, to discuss ways and means of action. After they were once fully assured of exactly what they wanted to do, and how they meant to do it, the League, he said, would invite the fullest and freest advice from all classes in the city. There were none, he said, amid great applause, that were so lowly that they would not be invited once the platform of the League was settled, to advise and cooperate. All might help, even the poorest. Subscription lists would be prepared which would allow any sum at all, from one to five dollars, to be given to the treasurer. The League was to be democratic or nothing. The poorest might contribute as little as one dollar. Even the richest would not be allowed to give more than five. Moreover, he gave notice that he intended to propose that no actual official of the League should be allowed under its by-laws to give anything. He himself, if they did him the honor to make him president, as he had heard it hinted was their intention, would be the first to bow to this rule. He would efface himself, he would obliterate himself, content in the interests of all, to give nothing. He was able to announce similar pledges from his friends, Mr. Boulder, Mr. Furlong, Dr. Boomer, and a number of others. Quite a storm of applause greeted these remarks by Mr. Fyshe, who flushed with pride as he heard it. "'Now, gentlemen,' he went on, "'this meeting is open for discussion. Remember, it is quite informal. Anyone may speak. I, as chairman, make no claim to control or monopolize the discussion. Let everyone understand—' "'Well, then, Mr. Chairman,' began Mr. Dick Overend. "'One minute, Mr. Overend,' said Mr. Fyshe. I want every one to understand that he may speak as— May I say, then, began Mr. Newberry. Uh, pardon me, Mr. Newberry, said Mr. Fyshe. I was wishing first to explain that not only may all participate, but that we invite. In that case, began Mr. Newberry. Before you speak, interrupted Mr. Fyshe, let me add one word. We must make our discussion as brief and to the point as possible. I have a great number of things which I wish to say to the meeting, and it might be well if all of you would speak as briefly and as little as possible. Has anybody anything to say? Well, said Mr. Newberry, what about organization and officers? We have thought of it, said Mr. Fyshe. We were anxious above all things to avoid the objectionable and corrupt methods of a slate, and a prepared list of officers which has disgraced every part of our city politics until the present time. Mr. Boulder, Mr. Furlong, and Mr. Skinyer, and myself have therefore prepared a short list of offices and officers which we wish to submit to your fullest, freest consideration." It runs thus. Honorable President, Mr. L. Feisch. Honorable Vice President, Mr. A. Boulder. Honorable Secretary, Mr. Furlong. Honorable Treasurer, Mr. O. Skinyer, etc. 
I needn't read it all. You'll see it posted in the hall later. Is that carried? Carried. Very good, said Mr. Fyshe. There was a moment's pause while Mr. Furlong and Mr. Skinyer moved into seats beside Mr. Fyshe, and while Mr. Furlong drew from his pocket and arranged the bundle of minutes of the meeting which he had brought with him. As he himself said, he was too neat and methodical a writer to trust to jotting them down on the spot. "'Don't you think,' said Mr. Newberry, "'I speak as a practical man, that we ought to do something to get the newspapers with us?' "'Most important,' assented several members. "'What do you think, Dr. Boomer?' asked Mr. Fyshe of the University President. "'Will the newspapers be with us?' Dr. Boomer shook his head doubtfully. "'It's an important matter,' he said. "'There is no doubt that we need, more than anything, the support of a clean, wholesome, unbiased press that can't be bribed and is not subject to money influence. I think, on the whole, our best plan would be to buy up one of the city newspapers.' "'Might it not be better simply to buy up the editorial staff?' said Mr. Dick Overend. "'We might do that,' admitted Dr. Boomer. "'There is no doubt that the corruption of the press is one of the worst factors that we have to oppose. But whether we can best fight it by buying the paper itself or by buying the staff is hard to say.' "'Suppose we leave it to a committee with full power to act,' said Mr. Fyshe. "'Let us direct them to take whatever steps may, in their opinion, be best calculated to elevate the tone of the press, the treasurer being authorized to second them in every way. I, for one, am heartily sick of the old underhand connection between city politics and the city papers. If we can do anything to alter and elevate it, it will be a fine work, gentlemen, well worth whatever it costs us.' Thus, after an hour or two of such discussion, the Clean Government League found itself organized and equipped with a treasury, and a program, and a platform. The latter was very simple. As Mr. Fyshe and Mr. Boulder said, there was no need to drag in specific questions, or try to define the action to be taken toward this or that particular detail, such as the hundred-and-fifty-year franchise beforehand. The platform was simply expressed as, Honesty! purity, integrity. This, as Mr. Fyshe said, made a straight, flat, clean issue between the League and all those who opposed it. This first meeting was, of course, confidential, but all that it did was presently done over again, with wonderful freshness and spontaneity, at a large public meeting open to all citizens. There was a splendid, impromptu air about everything. For instance, when somebody, away back in the hall, said, "'I move that Mr. Lucullus Feisch be President of the League!' Mr. Feisch lifted his hand in unavailing protest, as if this were the newest idea he had ever heard in his life. After all of which, the Clean Government League set itself to fight the cohorts of darkness. It was not just known where these were, but it was understood they were there all right, somewhere. In the platform speeches of the epoch they figured as working underground, working in the dark, working behind the scenes, and so forth. But the strange thing was that nobody could state with any exactitude just who or what it was that the League was fighting. It stood for honesty, purity, and integrity. That was all you could say about it. Take, for example, the case of the press. At the inception of the League it had been supposed that such was the venality and corruption of the city newspapers that it would be necessary to buy one of them. But the word clean government had been no sooner uttered than it turned out that every one of the papers in the city was in favor of it, in fact had been working for it for years. They vied with one another now in giving publicity to the idea. 
the plutoria times printed a dotted coupon on the corner of its front sheet with the words are you in favor of clean government if so send us ten cents with this coupon and your name and address the plutorian citizen and home advocate went even further it printed a coupon which said are you out for a clean city if so send us twenty-five cents to this office we pledge ourselves to use it the newspapers did more than this they printed from day to day such pictures as the portrait of mr fyshe with the legend below mr lucullus fyshe who says that government ought to be by the people from the people for the people and to the people and the next day another labelled mr p spillikins who says that all men are born free and equal and the next day a picture with the words tract of ground offered for cemetery by mr furlong showing rear of tanneries with head of mr furlong inserted it was of course plain enough that certain of the aldermen of the old council were to be reckoned as part of the cohort of darkness that at least was clear we want no more men in control of the stamp of alderman Gorfinkel and alderman schwefeldampf so said practically every paper in the city the public sense revolts at these men they are vultures who have feasted too long on the prostrate corpses of our citizens and so on the only trouble was to discover who or what had ever supported alderman Gorfinkel and alderman schwefeldampf the very organizations that might have seemed to be behind them were evidently more eager for clean government than the league itself the thomas jefferson club out for clean government so ran the newspaper headings of one day and of the next will help to clean up city government eureka club colored endorses the league is done with darkness and the day after that sons of hungary share in good work kosseth club will vote with the league so strong indeed was the feeling against the iniquitous alderman that the public demand arose to be done with a council of aldermen altogether and to substitute government by a board the newspapers contained editorials on the topic each day and it was understood that one of the first efforts of the league would be directed toward getting the necessary sanction of the legislature in this direction to help enlighten the public on what such government meant professor proser of the university he was one of the three already referred to gave a public lecture on the growth of council government he traced it from the amphictyonic council of greece as far down as the oligarchical council of venice it was thought that had the evening been longer he would have traced it clean down to modern times but most amazing of all was the announcement that was presently made and endorsed by mr lucullus fyshe in an interview that mayor mcgrath himself would favor clean government and would become the official nominee of the league itself this certainly was strange but it would perhaps have been less mystifying to the public at large had they been able to listen to certain of the intimate conversations of mr fyshe and mr boulder you say then said mr boulder to let mcgrath's name stand we can't do without him said mr fyshe he has seven of the wards in the hollow of his hand if we take his offer he absolutely pledges us every one of them can you rely on his word said mr boulder i think he means to play fair with us answered mr fyshe i put it to him as a matter of honour between a man and a man a week ago since then i have had him carefully dictaphoned and i'm convinced he's playing straight how far will he go with us said mr boulder he is willing to throw overboard gorfinkel schwefeldampf and undercut he says he must find a place for o'hooligan the irish he says don't care for clean government they want irish government 
"'I see,' said Mr. Boulder, very thoughtfully. "'And in regard to the renewal of the franchise and the expropriation, "'tell me just exactly what his conditions are.' "'But Mr. Fyshe's answer to this was said so discreetly and in such a low voice "'that not even the birds listening in the elm-trees outside the mausoleum club could hear it. "'No wonder, then, that if even the birds failed to know everything about the clean government league,' There were many things which such good people as Mr. Newbury and Mr. Peter Spilligans never heard at all, and never guessed. Each week and every day brought fresh triumphs to the onward march of the movement. "'Yes, gentlemen,' said Mr. Feisch, the assembled committee of the Clean Government League, a few days later, "'I am glad to be able to report our first victory. Mr. Boulder and I have visited the state capital and we are able to tell you definitely that the legislature will consent to change our form of government so as to replace our council by a board. "'Hear, hear!' cried all the committee men together. "'We saw the governor,' said Mr. Fyshe. "'Indeed, he was good enough to lunch with us at the Pocahontas Club. He tells us that what we are doing is being done in every city and town of the state. He says that the days of the old-fashioned city council are numbered. They are setting up boards everywhere.' "'Excellent,' said Mr. Newbury. "'The Governor assures us that what we want will be done. The chairman of the Democratic State Committee—he was good enough to dine with us at the Buchanan Club—has given us the same assurance. So also does the chairman of the Republican State Committee, who was kind enough to be our guest in a box at the Lincoln Theatre. It is most gratifying,' concluded Mr. Fyshe, "'to feel that the Legislature will give us such a hearty, such a thoroughly American support.' "'Are you quite sure?' persisted Mr. Newbury, about the governor and the others you mentioned? Mr. Fyshe paused a moment, and then he said, very quietly, "'We are quite sure.' And he exchanged a look with Mr. Boulder that meant volumes to those who would read it. "'I hope you didn't mind my questioning you in that fashion,' said Mr. Newbury, as he and Mr. Fyshe strolled home from the club. "'The truth is, I didn't feel sure in my own mind just what was meant by a board.' and getting them to give us government by a board. I know I'm speaking like an ignoramus. I've really not paid as much attention in the past to civic politics as I ought to have. But what is the difference between a council and a board? The difference between a council and a board? repeated Mr. Fyshe. Yes, said Mr. Newbury, the difference between a council and a board. Or call it, said Mr. Fyshe, reflectively, the difference between a board and a council. Precisely, said Mr. Newbury. It's not altogether easy to explain, said Mr. Fyshe. One chief difference is that in the case of a board, sometimes called a commission, the salary is higher. You see, the salary of an alderman or a councillor in most cities is generally not more than fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars. The salary of a member of a board or commission is at least ten thousand. That gives you at once a very different class of men. As long as you only pay fifteen hundred, you get your council filled up with men who will do any kind of crooked work for fifteen hundred dollars. As soon as you pay ten thousand, you get men with larger ideas. I see, said Mr. Newbury. If you have a fifteen hundred dollar man, Mr. Fyshe went on, you can bribe him at any time with a fifty dollar bill. On the other hand, your ten thousand dollar man has a wider outlook. If you offer him fifty dollars for his vote on the board, He'd probably laugh at you. Oh, yes, said Mr. Newbury. I see the idea. A $1,500 salary is so low that it will tempt a lot of men into office merely for what they can get out of it. That's it exactly, answered Mr. Fyshe. 
From all sides support came to the new league. The women of the city—there were fifty thousand of them on the municipal voters' lists—were not behind the men. Though not officials of the league, they rallied to its cause. Mr. Fyshe, said Mrs. Buncomhurst, who called at the office of the president of the league with offers of support, tell me what we can do. I represent fifty thousand women voters of this city. This was a favorite phrase of Mrs. Buncomhurst's, though it had never been made quite clear how or why she represented them. We want to help, we women. You know we've any amount of initiative, if you'll only tell us what to do. You know, Mr. Fyshe, we've just as good executive ability as you men, if you'll just tell us what to do. Couldn't we hold a meeting of our own, all our own, to help the League along? An excellent idea, said Mr. Fyshe. And could you not get three or four men to come and address it, so as to stir us up? asked Mrs. Buncomhurst anxiously. Oh, certainly, said Mr. Fyshe. So it was known after this that the women were working side by side with the men. The tea-rooms of the Grand Palaver and the other hotels were filled with them every day, busy for the cause. One of them even invented a perfectly charming election scarf to be worn as a sort of badge to show one's allegiance. And its great merit was that it was so fashioned that it would go with anything. "'Yes,' said Mr. Fyshe to his committee, "'one of the finest signs of our movement is that the women of the city are with us. Whatever we may think, gentlemen, of the question of women's rights in general—' "'And I think we know what we do think. There is no doubt that the influence of women makes for purity in civic politics.' I am glad to inform the committee that Mrs. Buncomhurst and her friends have organized all the working women of the city who have votes. They tell me that they have been able to do this at a cost as low as five dollars per woman. Some of the women, foreigners, of the lower classes whose sense of political morality is as yet imperfectly developed, have been organized at a cost as low as one dollar per vote. But of course with our Native American women, with a higher standard of education and morality, we can hardly expect to do it as low as that. Nor were the women the only element of support added to the League. Gentlemen, reported Dr. Boomer, the president of the university, at the next committee meeting, I am glad to say that the spirit which animates us has spread to the students of the university. They have organized, entirely by themselves and on their own account, a Students' Fair Play League, which has commenced its activities. I understand that they have already ducked Alderman Gorfinkel in a pond near the university. I believe they are looking for Alderman Schwefeldampf to-night. I understand they propose to throw him into the reservoir. The leaders of them, a splendid set of young fellows, have given me a pledge that they will do nothing to bring discredit to the university. I think I heard them on the street last night, said Mr. Newberry. I believe they had a procession, said the President. Yes, I heard them. They were shouting, Ra, 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 clean government, clean government, ra, ra. It was really inspiring to hear them. Yes, said the President, they are banded together to put down all the hoodlumism and disturbance on the street that has hitherto disgraced our municipal elections. Last night, as a demonstration, they upset two street cars and a milk wagon. I heard that two of them were arrested, said Mr. Dick Overend. Only by an error, said the President, there was a mistake. It was not known that they were students. The two who were arrested were smashing the windows of the car after it was upset with their hockey sticks. A squad of police mistook them for rioters. As soon as they were taken to the police station, the mistake was cleared up at once. The chief of police telephoned an apology to the university. I believe he is out again tonight, looking for Alderman Schwefeldampf. 
but the leaders assure me there will be no breach of the peace whatever. As I say, I think their idea is to throw him into the reservoir. In the face of such efforts as these, opposition itself melted rapidly away. The Plutorian Times was soon able to announce that various undesirable candidates were abandoning the field. Alderman Gorfinkel, it said, who, it will be recalled, was thrown into a pond last week by the students of the college, was still confined to his bed when interviewed by our representative. Mr. Gorfinkel stated that he should not offer himself as a candidate in the approaching election. He was, he said, weary of civic honors. He had had enough. He felt it incumbent on him to step out and make way for others who deserved their turn as well as himself. In future he proposed to confine his whole attention to his misfit semi-ready establishment, which he was happy to state was offering as knobby a line of early fall suiting as was ever seen at the price. There is no need to recount here in detail the glorious triumph of the election day itself. It will always be remembered as the purest, cleanest election ever held in the precincts of the city. The citizens' organization turned out in overwhelming force to guarantee that it should be so. Bands of Dr. Boomer's students, armed with baseball bats, surrounded the polls to guarantee fair play. Any man wishing to cast an unclean vote was driven from the booth. All those attempting to introduce any element of brute force or rowdyism into the election were cracked over the head. In the lower part of the town scores of willing workers, recruited often from the humblest classes, kept order with pickaxes. In every part of the city motor-cars, supplied by all the leading businessmen, lawyers, and doctors of the city, acted as patrols to see that no unfair use should be made of other vehicles in carrying voters to the polls. It was a foregone victory from the first, overwhelming and complete. The cohorts of darkness were so completely routed it was practically impossible to find them. As it fell dusk, the streets were filled with roaring and surging crowds celebrating the great victory for clean government, while in front of every newspaper office huge lantern pictures of Mayor McGrath, champion of pure government, and O. Skinner, the people's solicitor, and the other nominees of the League, called forth cheer after cheer of frenzied enthusiasm. They held that night in celebration a great reception at the Mausoleum Club on Plutoria Avenue, given at its own suggestion by the city. The city, indeed, insisted on it. Nor was there ever witnessed, even in that home of art and refinement, a scene of greater charm. In the spacious corridor of the club, a Hungarian band wafted Viennese music from Tyrolese flutes through the rubber trees. There was champagne bubbling at a score of sideboards, where noiseless waiters poured it into goblets as broad and flat as floating water-lily leaves, and through it all moved the shepherds and shepherdesses of that beautiful Arcadia, the shepherds in their tuxedo jackets, with vast white shirt-fronts broad as a map of Africa, with spotless white waistcoats girdling their equators, wearing heavy gold watch-chains and little patent shoes blacker than sin itself and the shepherdesses, in foaming billows of silk, of every color of the kaleidoscope, their hair bound with glittering headbands or coiled with white feathers, the very symbol of municipal purity. One would search in vain the pages of pastoral literature to find the equal of it. And as they talked, the good news spread from group to group that it was already known that the new franchise of the Citizens' Light was to be made for two centuries, 
so as to give the company a fair chance to see what it could do. At the word of it, the grave faces of manly bondholders flushed with pride, and the soft eyes of listening shareholders laughed back in joy, for they had no doubt or fear now that clean government had come. They knew what the company could do. Thus all night long, outside of the club, the soft note of the motor-horns arriving and departing wakened the sleeping leaves of the elm-trees with their message of good tidings, and all night long within its lighted corridors the bubbling champagne whispered to the listening rubber-trees of the new salvation of the city. So the night waxed and waned, till the slow day broke, dimming with its cheap prosaic glare the shaded beauty of the artificial light, and the people of the city, the best of them, drove home to their well-earned sleep, and the others, in the lower parts of the city, rose to their daily toil. End End of Chapter 8, Part 2 End of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock Recording by Kate Adams, South Bend.